there was sort of a mixed reaction to daylight savings time. <laughs> it was trending more on the negative side of that. I understand. So the thing is, if you have small children, they don't care. They're up early or sleep in, depending on which time of year it is, and it really doesn't matter for you at all. So anyway, so keep that in mind next week. Hopefully uh, we will not have people rolling in at 1130, uh, just as we're done, if that's the way it works. I can't remember which way it works this time, but anyway. Um, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning. Now here's an encouraging thought for you as we get going. If you work or if you're retired and you did work 40 hours a week at your job and you're in the workforce for 40 years, then you will work a little over 83,000 hours in your lifetime. Now, I understand that many of you are wishing that you could only work 40 hours a week. That would be a tremendous benefit for you. But regardless, if you stick to that 40-hour work week for 40 years, then that means that you will spend between 9 and 10 years of your life at work. Now, here's the thing. That is not wasted time at all. The reality is, is that God actually put us here to work. It's one of the primary things that he wants us to do. God put us here with a, a limited amount of time to use up that time with our lives, with doing things. And he fully intended that you and I would spend our lives away, that we would give away the hours of our lives working and working hard. And I think there are many Christians who don't often grasp the place of work in their Christian lives and the importance of work for their Christian lives. And honestly, as a, as a pastor and as a church leader, we've not done a great job of connecting what happens on Sunday and your spiritual life with God and your work life Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday or whatever it is. But work plays an important role in our lives. It's one of the reasons God has put us here. I mean, listen to Genesis 2 and verse 15. Before the fall into sin, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He had a task to do. This is before the fall into sin. And God's design for Adam is for him to be busy with a job, to be busy working in the garden. And this passage tells us that work is fundamentally good. It's a good thing to spend your time doing work. Now, obviously, we live after the fall, and the fall has frustrated the manner in which we work and the results that we get from our work. Listen to just the next chapter. After the fall, Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
Work will be frustrating. The job that God gave Adam to do to work the ground and keep it in Genesis 2 is now frustrating and it's hard to produce the right results in Genesis 3. Now, it's hard to imagine what work would have been like in Genesis 2 when Adam was told to cultivate the ground and to work the ground without this curse being on the ground and on him. And it's hard to imagine because the only experience that you and I know of our work is one of frustration and of failure mixed with success. And so because of the the experience of our work now, post-fall, it's easy to understand why for some people, for many people, work is frustrating and annoying and why people despise their jobs and why they wish they didn't have to go in tomorrow morning. Sorry to bring that up for you. (laughs) It's hard. The work is hard. It's frustrating. The people you work with are frustrating at times, all because of sin, because of the fall. But what we're going to look at this morning is that for believers in Christ, for those who have been redeemed by him, our perspective on our work has dramatically changed. It has been shaped by our calling in Christ. Christ. We are to walk worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, and that extends to our lives of work and what we do Monday through Friday in the plant or in the office. And that's exactly what Paul means in this section when he calls us to walk in wisdom. He's applying our calling in Christ to our lives of work. And so he's saying we allow the realities of our work, of the gospel and of our calling in Christ to influence how we work and the perspective that we have of our work. And so we're going to finish up this section this morning in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through chapter 6 and verse 9. We're going to finish with verses 5 to 9 of chapter 6. Walk in wisdom, and he's going to apply that command to walk in wisdom specifically to our work lives And we're going to see two ways that our work is shaped by our calling in Christ. So two ways that our work is shaped by our calling in Christ. The first one of these is in verses 5 to 8, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. But he says, employees, obey your boss, because ultimately you obey Christ. So we've seen throughout this section, if you haven't been with us, let me just tell you what we've been doing, and if you have, let me remind you. We've seen throughout this section Paul address different people, and up until this point, different groups of people. Up until this point, all of those groups have been family relationships. You can see in verse 22 of chapter 5, wives. Verse 25, husbands. Chapter 6 and verse 1, children. Chapter 6 and verse 4, fathers. And so he's addressing all these different groups of people, and he's telling them how they can walk in wisdom and how they can walk and show that they are filled with the Spirit. And so their lives, their actions will demonstrate that they have been changed by the gospel. And so now, in verse 5, he turns his attention away from the family and to an interesting group of people. Look at verse 5. He says, bondservants. Now, I need to explain to you why... I am addressing these points, as you can see on the screen, to employees and why Paul says here bondservants. Or some of you may have in your Bible the translation slaves. 
That's not a bad translation of this word. Bondservants or slaves is appropriate. But if you have the translation slaves in your Bible, you need to understand that the institution of slavery during this time was not exactly like the institution of slavery in America. The slavery that was a part of our history, a significant part of our history in this country, was based on the color of one's skin, and that was not the situation with Roman slavery, the institution that Paul is talking about here. But slavery, or indentured servanthood, was pervasive in the ancient world. It was a significant part of life. One author that I read said he estimates that half of the population were servants or slaves, and the other half were slave owners. So almost everybody was involved with this institution. But in this time, in the Roman Empire, it was not uncommon for a person to voluntarily enter into the position of being a servant, a bondservant, or a slave. People would do that for a number of reasons. Sometimes they just didn't have the resources to take care of themselves, and so they would enter into this situation of an indentured servant or a slave so that they could have a place to live and they could eat and they would have a job. Sometimes people would enter into this to pay off financial debts. And so they would owe someone money. You actually read about this in Matthew, um, where Jesus gives different parables that involve the institution of slavery in, in the Roman Empire or indentured servanthood. Once the debt was paid off, it was not uncommon for that person to be released from their situation as a servant. They would go free, and they would be a freeman at that point. The other difference, the major difference between this and American slavery is servants during this time could hold significant positions of influence and work in the society. There were examples of servants being doctors and lawyers and holding positions in the city as community leaders. They were teachers, almost holding regular jobs. All the while, they were accountable to their master. And so there were some benefits to this system in many ways, but it wasn't exactly a rosy system all the way across the board. The relationship between the slave and his master was definitely one of a person being owned by another person. You entered into this relationship and you were fully accountable to the master. It wasn't simply a relationship between an employee and an employer in many ways. Oftentimes, masters would abuse and mistreat their servants. And so because of that and because of some of the horrors of this system, that has led people to read Paul's instructions here and to say, why in the world doesn't Paul condemn this system? And why doesn't he speak out against it? And that's a fair question to ask and one that as Christians we should, we should wrestle, wrestle with. And I think some of the answers to that question are, keep in mind that this letter was written to a specific church, the church at Ephesus. And it was written to a specific group of people. It's not a letter to the emperor. He's not trying to convince him of specific policies. He's writing to church members. And there's no doubt that in the church at Ephesus, sitting, listening to this letter read, there were both servants and their masters. And they may have been sitting side by side in the church service, the gathering. 
And so Paul is instructing them on the specifics of how they need to live in their present circumstances. He's not making a political argument here. He probably didn't even have that capability in the Roman system. And so what he's doing is he's teaching Christians how to apply the gospel to their present circumstances, no matter what those circumstances are. But it's also interesting to note here that in this section, when you come to marriage that, and parenting, Paul roots the institutions of marriage and of parenting in the Old Testament, And he shows God's design for the structure of those relationships. But he doesn't do that with this system of servanthood or of slavery. There's no creational design for this. This was just something that happened to be a part of the culture in that day. He's teaching people how to live within the social structures of the day. And in reality, it's the very teaching that is here that people are to be treated with dignity and respect, and the fact that the Christian scriptures teach that everyone is made in the image of God, it's that teaching that ultimately would become the undoing of this sort of system later on. The root of the slavery system being undone is actually in the Christian view of human beings and of God and of the world. And so it's with all of that in mind that And the reality that we don't have a system like this today, that you come to this, and I do think the primary application of this is for work relationships, because this was an economic arrangement. You were working for this person. And so I think if Paul were writing this to us today, he would probably say something like this, employees, obey your boss, because ultimately you obey Christ. And so it's because of that, that's why we're putting the focus on work relationships here. So, what does Paul tell bondservants in Ephesus, and what is he telling those of us who today work for someone to do? How is he telling us to act? Well, here in verses 5 to 8, he's going to give us a command for employees, and he's going to give us a particular attitude that we carry into our jobs, and then he's going to give us a, a theological motivation. What drives you to live in obedience, and to have this attitude that he's going to describe. So first of all, he gives a command, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. I mean, it's quite clear, right? This is the same word and the same command that he gave to children. Now, what Paul's not saying here is that as an employee, he's not saying you can't have a discussion with your boss and suggest better ways to do things and interact with them how best to accomplish the goal of the company or anything like that. But what he is saying is that you need to recognize that God has put a structure of authority in place. And as a believer, you are responsible to live in that structure of authority. So you are to do what your boss asks you to do. You are to do your job under the authority and the directives of your boss. Now, of course, sometimes we we think we're obeying this command and we do it with an attitude that is completely inappropriate of a Christian. And that's the next place that Paul goes. Look here at the different attitudes that he describes. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. 
me, what he's describing there is a respect and a reverence for your boss. You recognize that in God's sovereign providence, you are working here and you are accountable to this person. And so you respect and reverence that authority. But beyond that respect, he gives the rest of the attitude in verse, the rest of verse 5 and in verse 6. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I mean, you know how work goes sometimes. It's easy to do the bare minimum when the boss is not around. And you know you can get away with it when he's not watching. It's easy to talk behind the boss's back, right? But Paul says here that it is appropriate and fitting and right for us as believers to both do what the boss asks, to live under that structure of authority at our jobs, and to do it with a sincere heart, not as men-pleasers, but to do it out of your heart with a singleness of focus on the task at hand. I work hard, I'm focused on the task, and I want to see it done well and accomplished for the good of my boss and the good of the company. And we're able to do that and work in that way when we recognize that we're ultimately serving Christ, that there's actually a higher authority here than our earthly masters. There's a much more significant audience who you are working for tomorrow or tonight when you go to your job. Look at how he describes this and the emphasis that he puts on this. Verse 5, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Right? There's a singleness of focus because you know that ultimately you're serving Christ. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. You're accountable to him. And then verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. It's pervasive in this passage that you are ultimately working for the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the task that is at hand for you. God has given you and I the jobs that we have, or the job that you did work before you retired. So we work hard, and we obey the boss, and we want our employers to succeed because ultimately we serve Christ, because he is our ultimate authority. He sees us, and our attitudes are directed toward him. They rise above just the boss, the earthly boss that we're working for. So we work under authority. We do what we're asked to do. With singleness of focus, we work hard as Christians, as we would for Christ, because we are working for him. But Paul doesn't just tell us what to do and how to do it. He gives us an incredible motivating tool for having this attitude of obedience to our bosses and ultimately to Christ. He gives us a motivation, a theological motivation for this. So, I would say when you are struggling with your job or with your boss, go here. Consider your calling in Christ, and your calling in Christ means that verse 8 is true. Look at verse 8. Knowing 
that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now, this is the broader perspective that you and I need of our jobs and of our tasks. This is much bigger than simply making money and viewing my job as just a vehicle to get a paycheck. This is much bigger than seeking promotions at work and wanting to be successful, although I think that's probably an implication of working hard here and doing what your boss asks you to do. It could be. But our ambitions as believers go far beyond the day-to-day grind of earthly life and work here. It's not just retiring with a nice income and a comfortable amount saved up. Our ambition goes far beyond that. This verse, verse 8, teaches what is found many other places in Scripture and specifically in the New Testament. And I think this is something that we, I, often forget in my life. I forget this future reality that is coming. And the future reality is that each and every person in this room is going to stand before the Lord someday. And that we are going to give an account for the way we have lived. You can see this all over the place, but I'll show you one example. 2 Corinthians 5. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this is... Scary, I think, in some ways, when you read it, right? That sounds intimidating. And it should be, because there are only two ways to enter into this situation here, where you're going to stand before the Lord. One of these is to be without Jesus Christ. You may stand before the Lord and have rejected him and his saving work. And have trusted in your own goodness and to believe and believe that your good works will outweigh your bad and that you're a pretty decent person. And that when the scales are decided that you'll probably come out a little bit ahead. And as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the reality is, is that you and I don't have to stand there and we can't ultimately stand in this judgment on our own merits and on our own good works. You won't make it in this moment. Instead, the other way that you can come to this moment is you can stand in this moment in union with Jesus Christ. And you can stand here united to him and have his righteousness as your defense. And this happens if you have repented of your sin and trusted in him. And then you will stand before God in this moment and your eternal destiny will not be at stake. Instead, this moment will become a sweet time for you. And that's what's being described in Ephesians 6 and verse 8. Instead, what will happen in this moment is that God's grace and your good works will be proof of your new life in him. And so he will look and he will see the good that you have done. 
And he will acknowledge that as proof of your new life in Christ. And the Spirit's work in you will enable those good works throughout your life, and then you will be rewarded for your good works and for what you've done and for what the Spirit has worked inside of you. So imagine a situation like that. You come to stand before the Lord, and God's grace has given you eternal life. And you are united to Jesus Christ, and you are secure in your eternal destiny. And then, as you stand before him, you are, as verse 8 says, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Then you are rewarded for the good that God has worked in you by his Spirit. That's exactly what he's describing in verse 8. And God holds out that reward to us as a motivation for obedience. And he holds that reward out to us as motivation for obedience, no matter what life circumstance you are in. And that's what he says in verse 8, whether he is a bondservant or is free. This reward, standing before him and being rewarded for the good you have done, is motivation to live in this particular way. But this eternal perspective, actually thinking about this moment and having the good that we will receive given to us as a reward, that's hard. It's hard to maintain that perspective throughout the week, throughout the work week. It's so easy to go to work and to fill our thoughts with earthly realities and to sort of lower our gaze from the heavenly realities, and only think about life here and to pretend or live as if life here is all there is. And this job in front of me is the only thing I have. And that's not a biblical perspective at all. And I think the reason for this is we don't immerse ourselves in the world of the Bible. And so our gaze is not lifted up to see the eternal and to see the promise of reward when we stand before the Lord. The Bible is filled with hope and expectation and promise of reward and joy in Christ. That's a motivating factor. The Bible does not shy away. Jesus does not shy away from the promise of reward as motivation. In fact, he uses it often for us to motivate us to obedience. And I think that promise of the future and that expectation of where we'll be standing before the Lord and receiving good from him, that is what has given believers throughout the centuries the strength and the fortitude and the courage to face difficult circumstances. I mean, you go read Hebrews chapter 11 and see how many of those believers anticipated by faith the reward that they would see one day. Let me show you one part of this. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They never got the promises in this life. They never got the reward in this life. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a joyful place to be with him for all eternity because we're united with him and to be rewarded for the very grace that he has worked in our lives and given to us. And so when you go to work this week and it's a struggle and it's hard, do you desire a better country? where you will be rewarded for the good works that God gives to you and works in you, even the smallest acts of faithfulness. But here in this passage, it's not only employees who he addresses. It's not only employees who have to keep an eye to the future. It's employers as well. This is our our second way that our work is shaped by our calling in Christ. Secondly, employers, treat your employees with dignity because you share the same master. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, Paul here at the first part of this, he says, do the same to them. He's not telling the masters to obey the servants. That's not what he's saying. He's not telling the employers to give all authority to their employees, to those who work for them. That's not what he's describing here. When he says this, do the same to them, he's telling the employers to act with the same attitudes and the same actions as their servants. Act for their benefit. Treat them with dignity. They are to work, employers are to work with respect and with sincerity, all the while keeping their heavenly authority in mind. And so that leads employers to to treat their subordinates, their employees with dignity and with respect. Look what he says. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, right? Right? In Roman society, it was very normal for masters to abuse and to threaten their servants. And some people believed that fear was the best motivator for the the servant to do a good job. And so for Paul to say this is a completely radical way of viewing this relationship and this institution. And his point here is, when you have been called by Christ to new life, And with his calling, then it shapes every area of your life. You live differently. You treat people differently. Look at the end of verse 9. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Servants had an earthly master, but both servants and masters have a heavenly master. Master. They are both accountable to the same master. And that authority, that master, is not impressed by your position or your power or your social status. He's not going to give the benefit of the doubt to the CEO over the hourly employee who's at the bottom of the pile. In fact, he's going to evaluate both of them using the same mechanism. High social status doesn't give you any advantage with God, who is master over all. And what's so amazing, I mentioned this earlier about this letter, is that 
Paul was writing this, and no doubt there were both servants and masters sitting in the church, listening to this letter be read. And as they were both sitting there listening, they both understood from this letter that they were both responsible to their calling in Christ and to let that calling shape the way they live and work. It had an impact. Both were responsible to walk in wisdom, to be filled with the Spirit, and to let the gospel shape every area of life. And so my encouragement to you this week, if you're an employer or an employee, in any capacity, if you're working, is to let your new life in Christ shape the way you go to work, the attitude you carry into work. Work is a gift from God. It is. It's one of the primary things that we are here to do with our lives. It's not secondary in many ways. You don't just work so that we can support missionaries. That's one of the results of work is as you give money to the church, we're able to support missionaries, but that's not the only reason you work. You work because God has called you into a particular vocation and given you the opportunity to serve others through the work that you do. It is a good thing to work. So work hard and work for God's glory and work knowing that you serve a master who will then reward you for your acts of faithfulness at your job. And that would be my encouragement to you through the Apostle Paul here for this coming week. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the challenge here. And I pray that you would encourage us in our lives this week in the very practical, normal course of life, the jobs that we go to, the work that we do, that even the smallest acts of faithfulness and the right attitude and the way we let the gospel influence our work will be rewarded and that in your goodness and grace you will give that back to us when we stand before you one day and so we thank you for that gift of kindness to us and Lord I also pray for those here who may not know you and who are looking to that day when they will stand before you And it's a fearful thing because they are outside of Christ. I pray that you would work in their hearts this morning and help them to see their need for you and for the work that you have done on our behalf and that they would embrace that by faith even this morning. Thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.